from the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Thank you, Dr. Rogelberg, for joining us for this particular episode. What we're going to focus on today is the art of meetings. And uh, I've been reading Dr. Rogelberg's book, The Surprising Science of Meetings, which I've got right here. And we'll be delving into some of the insights in the book as we go throughout this episode. I know there are lots of different types of meetings that we have. What is your definition that you would like us to focus on today? Well, first, thank you for having me. I'll just say a very simple definition. It's a gathering of two or more individuals to discuss a work-related matter. I know we all have lots of exposure to meetings. It seems to be something that many of us don't look forward to. So what is the problem with meetings? Are they something we should avoid or should we just try to enhance them so that people have a better experience? Great question. So meetings are, in many regards, an evolution of work. You know, meetings are a recognition, elevating human voice at work and involving people in decisions that affect them as well as the organization can lead to great potentials. And so a world without meetings is much more problematic, right? We need meetings for consensus decision-making, cooperation, communication. Many regards, organizational democracy takes place in meetings. So the goal is not to eliminate meetings. The goal is to eliminate bad meetings. And bad meetings is really what frustrates people. You know, meetings in and of themselves, when they're done well, you know, our research shows they actually are, can be very energizing. They actually can promote employee engagement. They can promote employee commitment to the organization. So there's lots of wonderful things associated with excellent meetings. The problem is... The ratio of bad meetings to good meetings is just not where we want it. From your perspective, Stephen, why are you so passionate about this particular topic? Was there something that sparked your interest from your personal life that got you hooked? Because you seem to have dedicated a large percentage of your career into figuring out how we can make meetings yeah. better. Good question. So I think there were a couple driving agents Yes, I personally found bad meetings incredibly frustrating. So there was a personal passion to try to figure out ways of addressing that type of frustration that I'm sure clearly lots of people experience. But stepping back from that, I'm an organizational psychologist. And in order to ask an organizational psychologist, I'm really drawn to studying workplace phenomenon of great practical importance, but also phenomenon that are not realizing the full potential and instead could actually be doing some harm. And if you think about meetings, it kind of fits all those boxes, right? Very common, needed, but the potential was clearly not being realized. So I love the thought of trying to identify evidence-based solutions to very practical problems. And that's what fueled me for the last two decades. In terms of the book, I noticed you had quantified some of the costs associated to meetings, especially around in the US. Could you share some of those insights with us? Just how expensive is it for us to run some of these meetings? Incredibly expensive. So as you know, the book talks about amount of meeting activity 
And then certainly you can look at typical salaries and cost out what this investment is. But what I talk about in the book with regard to meeting activity and investment is actually very low end estimates at this point. We know that meeting activity is much, much higher now given the pandemic. So there's more meetings than ever and they have direct costs, right? The direct costs of simply looking at the time by salary, but they have opportunity costs, right? People could be doing other things. So there's a different type of a cost. And then poor meetings have costs with regard to frustration and stress. We even have documented something called meeting recovery syndrome, which is the idea that when you have a bad meeting, you ruminate, you co-ruminate, and it actually negatively affects your productivity following the meeting. So the cost of meetings is high. The cost of bad meetings is really high. So Stephen, in the book, you've focused on lots of different elements, everything from the length of meetings through to the content, through to the mindset of a meeting leader. Could yeah. you share some of the insights from the book, some of the chapters in there that particularly resonate? That's a big question. <laughs> I liked every chapter. It's like a child. Every chapter is a child. You love all your chapters just as much. But I'll share a couple things. So first, I think the whole notion of how long a meeting should be is fascinating, right? Typically, our meetings are an hour. And why do you think that is? Why are our meetings typically an hour? What do you I'm, think? I'm blaming Microsoft Outlook for that because that's the yeah. option, isn't it? Often. That's right. It's like an art. It's an artifact. And that's not a good reason to have a meeting for an hour. So I'm really intrigued by this idea of, well, how long should a meeting actually take? Right? Let's be intentional and thoughtful and actually make a choice and not let Microsoft or Google make the choice for us. Especially given something that the researchers identified called Parkinson's law, which is the idea that work expands to fill whatever time is allotted to it. So magically, if a meeting is scheduled for an hour, it will take how long? One hour. But at the same time, if we schedule a meeting for 35 minutes or 20 minutes, we'll get it done, right? That's using Parkinson's law to give time back. We also know from the research that dialing meeting time back a bit creates pressure. And that pressure actually creates more focus in meetings and led to even better outcomes. So that's one thing that the book talks about. The second thing I'll just tee up is there's a chapter that was controversially called Agendas Are a Hollow Crutch. You know, if you open most books about meetings or you examine a training program on meeting, they always say, have an agenda, have an agenda, have an agenda. Well, Interestingly, research on agendas is quite equivocal. You know, having an agenda in and of itself really doesn't do all that much for meeting effectiveness. And if you stop and reflect, that's actually not a surprise. A good deal of agendas are just recycled meeting to meeting. What matters more than just having an agenda is how did you create it? Did you seek input from others? Is it really relevant to other people? Is it important? And most importantly, how did you facilitate completion of those agenda items? So the science can really shed some light on some really intriguing issues associated with meetings. But how would you like to hear about an innovation in agendas? Curious? Absolutely. Yes, because I, I have to agree with you. I have seen many meetings where it's the same old stuff. There's an introduction section. It's maybe one or two points in the middle and then the Q&A at the end. And it just feels very repetitive for sure. Yeah, it doesn't feel inspired at all. So here's an innovation in agendas. Instead of framing your agenda as a set of topics to be discussed, consider framing your agenda as a set of questions 
to be answered. By framing your agenda as a set of questions to be answered, now you really have to think, like, why are we actually meeting? What are we trying to achieve? By framing agenda items as questions, you have a better sense of who you need to invite. They're relevant to the questions. You have a better sense if the meeting has been successful. The questions have been answered. Questions serve to create an engaging challenge for people that can drive focus. And, and if you just can't think of any questions, what does that likely mean? Do we need the meeting at all? Exactly. So you can see, I mean, meeting science applied can very much make this, make meetings, the ratio of bad meetings to good meetings much more favorable for the organization and the leader. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's such a great way to do it, actually, having those statements converted into questions because it just gets people in a different mindset. There's a, an expectation exactly. in that you're here to help answer these, right? Love that. Exactly. And so in terms of the preparation for a meeting, what are some of the key steps that we should take there? Because I guess even to formulate those questions, there's a certain thought process that we must go through. What would you recommend right. that? So often leaders don't forward the key topics that are going to be discussed, but then often it's the case that even if they do forward the key topics, it's not necessarily really clear what the nature of that conversation is. So, you know, going back to what we just chatted about, you know, when you forward questions, people can't help but kind of start answering the questions in their head, right? So just seeing the questions allows for some of that thought to occur before the meeting. You know, the other types of preparation that are needed, you know, obviously if there is some reads that need to be done, trying to do them in advance is really critical. This is much easier to do once we start dialing back meeting times, right? Because now people will have that available time. Furthermore, if we stop scheduling, you know, meetings back to back to back with no intervals in between, you know, that can help with some prep time. So in my ideal world, you know, if meetings are 20 minutes or 50 minutes, so then you have a 10 minutes between your next meeting. So you can actually review some of the content, you know, to get ready for your current meeting. And then, you know, another practice in terms of preparation is something that Amazon often does, which is they build preparation into the meeting itself. So basically, given how busy people are, expecting them to prepare before a meeting might not be realistic. So let's make the first 10 minutes of the meeting prep time, you know, where everyone sits and reads the materials, and then there's a vibrant conversation. It's a nice practice, and leaders often love it because now they know everyone has actually done what was needed to be done. In your book, I love chapter four. So chapter four is all about meet for 48 minutes. So that's yeah. that's a really interesting chapter. Could you tell us a little bit of the thinking behind the 48-minute meeting? And also, I know you, you've mentioned in there an example from Marissa Meyer, who's the ex-CEO of Yahoo, and she even goes as far as having 10-minute meetings. So right. just interesting to hear some of the thought process around those different variations. That chapter was supposed to be provocative in saying, start making choices. Start making choices about how long you should meet. And, you know, and that's a theme of the book in so many regards is we tend to not think much when we call a meeting. Instead, we just take people's time. We tend to recycle practices that we ourselves have experienced. So the theme tends to be that there's an absence of intentionality that goes in when you're doing a meeting. And there's often an absence of stewardship. And stewardship is the idea that you want people to attend your meetings to feel like their time was valued. 
that you are a good steward of their time. When you're a good steward of time, the thought of people leaving your meeting saying that that was a waste is so uncomfortable to you that you plan a thoughtful experience. And interestingly, we adopt a stewardship mindset every time, basically. We meet with a key boss or a key stakeholder because we would never want those people to leave the meeting saying that was a waste. But it's often the case that we're meeting with our team or peers. We just don't seem to have the same stewardship or intentionality. So that chapter was really just trying to get people to start acting with intentionality and stewardship when making the choices of how long a meeting should be. And so it's the idea that if you're trying to accomplish A and B, well, how long should that take? Think about it. Maybe it should only take 15 minutes, but give it some thought. You know, you can always schedule more time if needed, but I like the idea of taking the challenge of dialing meeting time back, elevating stewardship, and have a productive meeting, but with another outcome, which is giving people the greatest gift that they desire, which is a little bit more time. Got it. And what I love, actually, you mentioned in the book about as a meeting leader, sometimes you can be forgiven for starting the meeting late, but never end late, which is a great right. I gave that tip to my boss the other day because she was running a little bit late and I made the point to her. I said, just make sure we end on time because otherwise this audience will not forgive you for that. And even she took that on board and found that really fascinating. That was a great little insight. Yeah, no, you're, uh, yeah, you're, you're so right. That was, was a great summary. And yeah, you know, when you call a meeting, you've in a sense created a contract of sorts with your attendees. And part of that contract is when it starts and when it ends. And while there is a little bit more forgiveness around starting late, not a lot, a little bit more, but ending late, well, people detest that. Yeah, got it. And I know you talk also a little bit about by observing someone's meeting, you can tell a lot about a culture or that particular organization. Yeah. What are some of the things we could learn about an organization just from being a fly on the wall? Great question. I see meetings as windows of insight into leader effectiveness, organizational culture, values. I mean, meetings tell you so much. It tells you so much about, do you truly care about employee voice? Do you truly care about getting ways engaged in solving problems that affect them? You know, do leaders walk a set of values, right? So any leader can say, yeah, I'm all about engaging my people and including them, but aren't they doing it? in meetings. You know, meetings become this a display stage for really how good that leader is and those values. So meetings really are, they're just rich. They are so rich with information. In fact, some of the new speeches I've been doing, I've really framed meetings as a potential competitive advantage, right? So we know so many organizations are wallowing in bad meetings. So if you're that organization, that can make your meetings effective, that promote innovation, you can actually differentiate yourself from your competition. Improving your meetings can actually become competitive advantage. Furthermore, having good meetings leads to a more engaged set of employees. And we all know how important engagement is. So we can often think about fixing meetings as a way of decreasing frustration. And I get that. And I believe in that. But fixing meetings is really an opportunity. This is an opportunity for a leader and an organization to reach new heights in their effectiveness and ability to engage and retain their people. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I was just thinking there for a moment, wouldn't it be great if an organization were to post a short video of a random meeting at the time at which you hire new employees and for those potential employees to get an idea of what it's like actually working there? I wonder how many people would actually still take the job. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, that's probably, yeah, that's going to that's gonna be the challenge because sadly so many people run their meetings so poorly. And then another little interesting twist on that is the research generally shows that when you survey people leaving a meeting, there is someone who leaves the meeting saying that was a good use of time. And who do you think that is? Probably the guy who set up the meeting, I'm guessing. The leader, yeah. right? The leader has this artificial impression that, or this impression that the meeting was more positive than everyone else. So this is disconnect. Now, when the leader thinks it's good, everyone else thinks it's bad, but if the leader thinks it's good, they're not going to be very motivated to change. And that's part of the problem. Got it. So very quickly, Stephen, I know there's so much goodness in the book, but if you had to really pin it down to a handful of key tips for people, what might be some really practical things that people could do immediately to make their meetings so much more enjoyable? So first, I, you know, I would say, you know, do the question-based approach. Think carefully about how much time the meeting should take. Think very carefully about who you would invite to the meeting. Who really needs to be there versus who can you just keep in the loop, right, afterwards? Facilitate. Your job as a meeting leader is to truly facilitate and elevate those voices. If you're doing all the talking, you're failing, right? Because if you're doing all the talking, you didn't need to bring everyone together synchronously to have the conversation. That's four. And I'll just round it out with a fifth. Meetings should have a close. I found in my research is so many leaders actually don't have a proper close to a meeting. They just end. The best practice is really with three or four minutes left in the meeting, you stop. You stop and you review what was decided, who's responsible for that, what wasn't decided and maybe needs to be revisited. Also in that close, you can summarize the key points of that meeting. We don't need a complete capturing of everything that was said in the meeting, but we do need a set of quick summaries that we can give to non-attendees so that they don't feel like they've been marginalized or excluded. So I think that closing is this great opportunity to make sure that no one leaves your meeting wondering what you just did. Furthermore, the close helps people recognize that the time spent was actually valuable. And that's what we all crave, right? We're willing to give people our time if we feel like they use it valuably. And that's where that close can help. Thank you so much, Stephen, talking about using time that is valuable. I hope this episode was of value to people out there. It certainly was for me. I just want to say one thing about your book. It's refreshing to see that it's such a nice read in terms of it's not about 500 pages long. It's digestible. And maybe that was done intentionally. I'm not sure. But for me, it's so refreshing to be able to just pick up a book and literally read it within a week or so because I'm a very slow reader. Others will probably read it in a couple of hours, I'm sure, who are much faster than I. But it was just nice to really get the good, valuable stuff from a book rather than having to go through 500 pages and find that, you know, it's only 100 pages worth of value. So thank you for creating that in that structure. Well, thank thank you. I really appreciate that. That was very intentional. You know, I don't think it it goes back to the reality that people are struggling to find time. And, you know, while I I love, you know, I see these big books, 500, 600 pages exploring a topic. And while in theory, I'd love to read them, I can't do it. 
So when I produced this book, I wanted it to be digestible. And furthermore, as you could tell by the voice, it's like I'm talking to you. I mean, I, I really tried to make it like a TED talk where I felt, you know, I was elevating the science, but just it was like I was sitting down with you in a conversation because I, I just want people to use it. You know, I feel like there's such a need to make our meetings better. And I just hope that this book is a part of that journey to elevate time, give time back, and through both, you know, just help people thrive and organizations thrive. Oh, fantastic. What a lovely way to end. So thank you so much once again. Oh, cheers. Thank you so much.